This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series from inside the literary world. My name is Gemma Birrell, and I'll be speaking with some of the world's most interesting and visionary writers and creative icons about what they're working on now and how they balance life and art. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Irish writer Derin Nagrifa. Derin has published in both Irish and English and has written six acclaimed collections of poetry. Her most recent, To Star the Dark, was described by the Irish Independent as playful, serious, joyful and moving. Her book of prose, called A Ghost in the Throat, received Book of the Year at the Irish Book Awards and has had phenomenal reviews across the world. Derin also received many other awards and accolades, including a Lannan Literary Fellowship, Italy's Ostana Prize, a Seamus Haney Fellowship and the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. I discovered Derren's writing with A Ghost in the Throat thanks to the recommendation of a wonderful Australian writer called Sandra Lee Price, and since then I've been recommending it to many people in turn. Reading this book is a central, multifaceted experience, as it is reading Derren's poetry. It dives into all manner of subject, from bees and breastfeeding to anatomy and what happens to bodies when they're given over to science. Many scenes are grounded in the minutiae of a woman's life, as Darren both celebrates and documents motherhood, rearing children, and the joy and messiness of it all. And at the heart of the story is one of Ireland's great poets, a woman named Eileen Dovnaconnell, and her iconic poem, Orkeen of Lament. A Ghost in the Throat is part obsession, part honouring, and it is not actually classifiable, which is part of what I love too. To use Darren's own term, this is a female text. Darren, hello. How are you tonight? Or this morning over there, isn't it? (laughs) It is. It's morning over here. And um, I live quite close to Blarney Castle, which you might be familiar with. And I'm looking out towards it now. And um, it's out there someplace in the distance, but there's very heavy grey clouds overhead and some sunlight breaking through. Um, So it's a beautiful morning here in the south of Ireland. Can you describe a little bit more closely the area where you live? You're looking onto this castle. For people who haven't been to the area or who don't know anything about it really, could you ground us in what that place is like? Yeah, I suppose it's it's close to Cork City. Um, so we're just out in the countryside close to Cork City, only about 15 minutes from, from the centre of the city. Um, and this kind of... It's strange describing the place uh, that you see every day yourself, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's strange to imagine <laughs> it through someone else's eyes. But yeah, it's it's very pretty. There's rolling green hills and there's um, some trees. And, and we live in a little village, which is very busy. And you may hear some sounds of drills from my neighbour next door, who's very industrious this morning, <laughs> doing some important work. It's a really nice place to live. Um, I grew up on the west of Ireland, So it's really interesting to be here in the south of Ireland, where I have been really since I was 17, so over half my life. But I still look at Cork and the landscape around here with, I suppose, kind of astonishment. I really enjoy living here. I love the city. I love the vibrancy of the city, but I love this area outside the city as well. And Mm. it feels as though there are so many layers to the history here that... I've yet to feel my way into and that's always been a great source of fascination and 
imagination and daydream for me to get that sense of the past that's always kind of vibrating around us no matter Mm. where we find ourselves. Do you think you you noticed a distinct shift in your writing when you moved there? Did the countryside and where you were really inform that? Well, hmm, that's an interesting question. I suppose whenever I think about my own practice and try to articulate elements of it, it, I find that very challenging because it feels so mysterious to me. Mm. I only came to writing as an adult. So I was in my late 20s before I ever started to write and um, I was a mother by then. And and so that's the kind of um, life I had as a writer always. I've never known what it is to be a writer Mm. beyond those experiences. Um, Mm. So when I began to write first, I was living in the middle of the city. And then as I describe in A Ghost in the Throat, there came a point where Due to rising rents, very unromantic, but just real life, uh, we moved to um, a quieter part of the county outside the city. And it definitely did change my writing in in ways that I'm still, I suppose, coming to understand. Mm. Um, With poetry in particular, I feel like writing within an urban landscape, within a busy a busy city definitely has an influence on the pacing of a Mm. poem in a very um, important way. Like you can almost feel the city throbbing within the lines of a poem, or at least I can. When I read the poems that I composed in those years when I was in the city, I can Mm. feel the city. I can feel the city. I can feel the the roar and the surge of the traffic and you know I just uh, the place where we lived in the city you could look out over the valley and there was another city hill rising just above us. Cork is a very very hilly city mm-hmm. and you could see all the streets and roads um, laid out and it always reminded me of like arteries and veins in the human body. There was always movement along those paths. There was always almost like liquid surging along mm. um, through veins or arteries. And 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 I felt like that energy found its way into my poems. So I mm. guess since we moved away from the city, it has become a different kind of rhythm behind the poems. Right. Um, and that has been interesting and strange to me and I suppose I'm still kind of getting used to that. Mm -hmm. It was interesting just talking about being up high and the pace of the city. I saw a piece that you posted about Ghost in the Throat and how you wrote it which was you know moments kind of stolen moments in a car park in your car. Can you describe (laughs) what happened there? (laughs) I certainly can. Um, (laughs) So Uh, I have four small children and like a lot of writers who are parents and like a lot of writers who have demanding jobs that they do outside of their writing lives, I became very practiced at seeking out little moments here and there or little periods where I could focus on my writing within the demands of of everybody else, I guess, really, you know, and and that's Mm. very, I think... uh, I think that that's something that all writers are used to. You know, there's there's it's very rare to find a writer who has succeeded in building a life for themselves where they can enter an office and sit 
and write in quiet solitude for eight or nine hours every day, like a day job. You know, I think that we're all kind of like magpies going through our days, seeking out these little moments here and there. And mm. for me, um, when my youngest child started in play school, she would be in there with her little pals and her teacher for three hours every morning. And that just felt extraordinary to me at that time of my life that I had what what felt like this huge island of time all of a sudden where I could find a quiet place to write and focus on writing alone. Mm. It felt like luxury mm. and um, I couldn't bring myself I couldn't bring myself to drive the distance home. So that would have taken 15 minutes each way out oh. of that three precious three hours. So it would have been 30 minutes gone. So I suppose the way it worked would have been that I would have gotten the kids ready for school, dropped them all off and then driven straight to the roof of this free multi-storey car park that was nearby and just thrown open my laptop and just started typing and typing and typing. Um, and it was actually a really interesting place to write a book because on the roof of a multi-storey car park, you have a real sense of distance. You have a real sense of height. Mm. And it was a very quiet car park, so there was never any other cars there except mine. And I had the sense almost like I was up in the sky and I was able to angle my car towards the distance, towards the point in the distance where Eileen Dovney Connell, who was the subject of the book I was writing, had lived centuries before. Mm. So it was a real um, manifestation of the distance between us in terms of time and the physical distance between where I was sitting to write this book and the ground where she had lived her days. So looking back now, Mm. I'm so glad that I chose that place to write the book because I feel that it really made itself felt throughout the book. And mm. similarly to your question about the city, I often suspect that the place in which we write does make itself felt in the texture of a book, even when it's not explicit, that the place in which a book is written can be felt within the book in some kind of strange way. Mm. Could you describe where this book came from and who Eileen Dubna-Connell was for all of the people around the world who might not know this wonderful character in Ireland's history? Yes, um, Eileen Dubna-Connell was an extraordinary poet who lived hundreds of years ago in the 18th century um, in Ireland. And at the point where she would have been living her life, it was also a really fraught moment in our history during a time where the penal laws were being brought to bear on, on the Irish population. And and really, that was a moment in the colonisation of Ireland that was brutal, um, in which the spirits of the people um, were really, there was a, a strong and concerted attempt being made to break people's spirits at that point. Mm. So the rights of Irish people would have been really um, changed in the legal framework within which they were allowed to live. So, for example, um, 
education and the different types of trades and and um, jobs that people allow, were allowed to practice were really tightly controlled under that. And, and the most um, relevant element of that, those laws to Eileen Dovni Connell's story was that no Irish person was allowed to hold a horse worth more than five pounds. Oh. Um, and the reason that that became important because there was a man that she fell madly in love with and eloped with against her family's wishes. And he was someone very rare and um, very <laughs> unusual for the times because he refused in a very powerful way to accept the ways in which the spirits of the people were being attempted to be broken. He mm. insisted on behaving with great flamboyance um, and his name was Arthur O'Leary and he had been given a beautiful horse by an empress in whose army he was serving at the time in Europe and he brought that horse home and he loved that horse so much mm. and um, one of the English men who lived nearby, who had been a magistrate, insisted that he sell him the horse for five pounds, which was legal, but was also an extraordinary mm. insult. And of course, Arthur Lira refused and a price was put on his head. And eventually that gesture of refusal that Arthur Leary made led to his death and led to Eileen Dovni Connell, his beloved, falling over his body and composing this extraordinary poem called Queen Arthur Lyra, which was a lament for her husband, but also a song of praise for the kind of man he had been, this kind of defiant, mm. handsome, um, really brazen kind of a man. And it's a really important work of literature um, and what's astounding about it is that it has succeeded in making its way to us, to to readers now, hundreds of years later. And I suppose the first time I came across that poem, I was only a little girl and it was introduced to us in school. I would have been um, studying it again in, in quite a small way, I suppose, in secondary school. And then... Um, when I came back to it in adulthood, I just was in awe of the strength and the passion of Eileen Dove's voice. Mm. It wouldn't let go of me, Gemma. I just <laughs> found myself returning to the poem again and again. And what I was really struck by was every time I spoke this poem out loud, it felt as though the echo of her voice was being spoken within my own small life, my own small home, and 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 that this was something extraordinary and something we so often take for granted that when we read aloud the works of literature of the past, some element of another person's voice is is surging up again through our bodies. Mm. And the more I returned to the poem, the more I thought about, the closer I felt to Eileen Dove and the more I wanted to find out about her life, you know, yes. what happened to her, what happened to her before and after this poem. There was so little I could find in the official record yeah. of her life and I was really curious to know more. And how did this poem come to be passed down in history? 
It's actually very interesting. Um, initially, like a lot of oral literature, it, it succeeded in finding its way from person to person by the act of recitation and by the act of it being learned by heart. So anytime that people were sitting around and it was this poem was spoken aloud, it would have been learned. And then that that. I suppose that action would have been repeated again and again in different kinds of gatherings. So it would end up, rather than being published and printed, and and it ended up being carried within the human body, Mm. which again is something we take for granted so often. But it is really extraordinary, isn't it? So for Mm. a long time, this poem survived because... The voice that was captured within the lines of this poem was so powerful that people were compelled to repeat the poem to each other and to learn the poem and to repeat and recite it again and to learn the poem. And then eventually it was transcribed, it was published, and it has eventually at this point, it has made its way into our literary canon. It's been so interesting to reflect on that poem and to reflect on that process um, because it it just is amazing, isn't it? Mm, mm. It's so incredibly powerful. What I really love, um, you know, I'd love to hear more about your translation, um, your journey of translation of this keen, of this poem as well. Um, but first of all, what I also really loved was, as you were talking about before, is that gap of time between your life and hers, but also the shared things. You're both mothers and how you discovered that in her poem when you read it when you were a bit older from that first time when you discovered her work. And you saw that she she was a mother and she had a third child on the way, two children with a third child on the way. I also, what I love about this book of yours is the way you write about motherhood, about your own experiences, as I mentioned in that introduction. Could you read a section on motherhood, on your own experiences that you're describing. Okay, ready to go. Look, it is a Tuesday morning and a security guard in a creased blue uniform is unlocking a door and standing aside with a light-hearted bow because look now, here I come with my hair scraped into a rough bun, a milk-stained blouse, a baby in a sling, a toddler in a buggy, a nappy bag spewing books, and what could only be described as a dangerous light in my eyes. I know that I have a six-minute window at best before the screeching begins, so I'm unclipping the buggy fast, faster now, and urging the toddler upstairs. I peek into the sling where tiny eyelids swipe and sleep, plonk the toddler by my feet and, eyes darting around in search of the librarian who once chastised me, I shove a forbidden banana into his fist. Please, I whisper, please just sit still while Mammy just, just... I tug a wrinkled list from the nappy bag, my fingertips racing the spines. Just two minutes, I think. Just two. The sling squirms and the baby rips an extravagant blast into his nappy. (laughs) I smile. How could I not? And yank the last two books from the shelf. I am grinning as I kiss the toddler's hair. Grinning as I hoist my load sideways, step by slow step down the stairs. 
with one gooey banana hand in mine and a very familiar smell rising from the sling. This is how a woman in my situation comes to chase down every translation of Eileen Dove's words, of which there are many, necessitating many such library visits. Few come close enough to her voice to satiate me, though, and the accompanying pages of her broader circumstances are often so sparse that they leave me hungry. Not just hungry, I'm starving. I long to know more of her life, both before and after the moment of composition. I want to know who she was, where she came from, and what happened next. I want to know what became of her children and grandchildren. I want to read details of her burial place so I can lay flowers on her grave. I want to know her and to know her life. And I am lazy, so I want to find all these answers laid out easily before me, preferably in a single library book. The literature available to me, however, is mostly uninterested in answering such peripheral curiosities. Still, I search because I'm convinced that there must be a text in existence somewhere that shares my wonder. Oh, that was a beautiful reading. Thank you. There really is an element of a detective story, as you've touched on in that beautiful piece that you just read, as you hunt down the details of Aline's life. And the more you find out, the more you also see this immensity of what is missing, the silences and the way that women are defined or qualified by their relationship to men. And it was incredibly infuriating. I felt like we came with you, we the reader, we were with you in that kind of absolute frustration in your search for information about Eileen's life. Yes, absolutely. And you know that that the end of the piece that I just read there, I was so struck by that because I'm such a bookworm, you know, like I would have been delighted if I could have found a book on the library shelves that told me the story of her life. That was all I wanted. And in fact, what ended up happening was that because I couldn't find all that information gathered in a coherent way in any book, I ended up setting out to find that information myself and and to write that book myself. That book that shares my wonder was the book that I ended up writing. Mm. Um, and the process of researching and writing the book was very interesting. And I'm glad that you feel that the reader is brought along um, in the a kind of detective or the adventure story element of this book, because that was really important to me to, to be open with the reader about the fact that the person narrating this story, who's very close to me, um, would have been quite an unreliable narrator, I suppose. It's not, I'm, I'm far from being an expert. I don't have any qualifications in history. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a, you know, professional genealogist or someone who would be practiced at, um, I suppose, going through these sources and, and piecing together the jigsaw of the past. But in a way, I hope or I think... That makes the whole adventure of this book 
even more exciting for the reader because they can identify with that element of trying to figure out Mm. one's way through the documents that are left through which we piece together a history. I think as readers, we can be accustomed sometimes to coming to a history book where all the that legwork, all the sense of going through documents and archives has been done in a very methodical way, but that that legwork is hidden from us for the sake of neatness and coherence, and mm. understandably so. But that sometimes opening up the messiness of that can be exciting, I guess, for the reader, because they feel as though they're discovering the story alongside the discovery of the story that's being articulated Mm. in the book. And as I was writing the book, I felt that so, so strongly, Gemma. I felt the reader with me. Anytime I found a little nugget of information, anytime I found some trace of Eileen Dove's life, something Mm. that I hadn't realised at that point, I felt excited at a personal level, but I also felt the reader with me. And it was so, um, it's so kind of very emotional because we are with you as well. Like there's various kind of ups and downs in this search for Eileen. For example, even her grave, we don't know where you, you couldn't, I mean, her, her grave is not marked. It's not written down where it is or where, where she died or exactly how or what happened. And there's the most devastating moment that you write about, isn't there, where you find an incredibly thrilling piece of writing in a family Bible that you think is going to shed some light. And <laughs> and it was such a letdown, wasn't it, yeah. at that yeah. moment? Mm. Yeah. And I think oftentimes when we embark on this kind of an adventure, and it's mm. very ordinary in a lot of ways, this kind of an adventure. Anytime I'm speaking to anyone who has attempted to research a family tree, I feel a great kinship with them because mm. even though I'm not related to Eileen Dovni Connell at all, I've experienced that that insatiable hunger as well, that want for knowledge, that want for connection, to figure out the puzzle or the mystery of the lives of the past. What mm. happened to these people? And then what happened? And then what happened? And why? And I think for anyone who has attempted that, um, and it's something that's much more common now that so many of the records, have, the historical records have been digitized. And I know that so many others share my frustration at those brick walls you hit against, you know, when you're attempting this kind of research. And oftentimes you pin all your hopes on a single document that you're striving to find. Like for me, for example, I was so determined to find this family Bible that we knew there would be writing in it that, you know, you know, the way often in an old Bible, the family tree will be written at at the front and one of the leaves at the front of it. And I was convinced that that would give us the maybe the date that Eileen Dove died and that I'd be able to extrapolate from that, maybe where she was buried and and visit her grave. But even in that kind of a document compiled by her own relations, the fact that she was, as I found, that she was forgotten, that she wasn't, that her name wasn't written within that document when I finally mm. did find it, was so heartbreaking that I was in a special collections room in the library in the city and I was so 
viscerally shocked and uh, mm. distraught. That's how absorbed I was in this adventure, the stage that my head <clears> fell <throat> down on the table and I just started to cry in front of the security guards and librarians that were there. Like I, I was just so deeply moved by this story and the fact that there are emissions, omissions all throughout the story of this woman's life. Mm. Yeah, I suppose the way I look at it now that I have a little distance since the book was published is that so many readers have found their way to this book. And I'm really hopeful that someone someday far more qualified than I am will come to this book and will find out more information about Eileen Dove's life. In fact, I know that's going to happen. I know that person is out there and it might take them a while to find the book and to find their way to this new information, but I know it'll happen. I know it will. And I can't wait to find out this more of her life. But interestingly, I think there's something more, even more vivid and poetic in the way that you channel her life, in the way that you talk about the ghost, about uh, the ghost of this woman who is with you, who haunts your days. And even the way you talk about that, it's not a haunting in any negative sense. It's a haunting in a really energising, creative force of of a way, isn't it? And when you're writing about the kind of daily grind of cleaning up after the children and, and um, you know, all the little kind of details that accumulate in those days of mothering, it's interesting seeing how the presence of this woman and thinking about, about her and her story, how that also helped kind of starve off the loneliness at that time as well. Yeah, I think, I think it's an element, particularly of early motherhood, that is little spoken about is loneliness. And sometimes we, as parents, don't even recognize it ourselves um, because you're surrounded by sound and by busyness and by routines and cleaning up spillages and doing laundry and that your to-do lists are, are full and the soundscape is full. And you're just running from one thing to the next. And it's there can be a real loneliness that coexists with all that busyness, you know. And and um certainly for me, I found that in motherhood, you know, I've I felt that kind of an ache. And when I began to attend to Eileen Dove's voice and to the story of her life and began to try to find out more about her, she began to feel more and more real to me. Mm. Um, And that was a comfort in the lonely days of motherhood. That was a comfort. And it's funny, it's such a contradiction that in those days when, when kids are small, you just feel like, you're never alone. That can be one of the hardest things, I think. You're never alone. There's never silence, really. It's just go, go, go. And and yet at the same time, you're often alone within it, um, within the kind of tornado of, of parenting small kids. Mm. Um, and I felt, I suppose I felt great comfort in her presence. Um, And I feel very grateful for that element of my life. And I still feel her with me. You know, I was reluctant when it came time to finish this book, Gemma, and I could feel the end of it approaching. 
I didn't want it to end because I was afraid that I was afraid that she'd leave me. I was afraid I'd be left on my own. I know it sounds strange to say mm. that, mm. but um, I needn't have worried because I do, I do still feel her presence with me. Absolutely. And it's been so exciting to see or to witness, I suppose, to witness Eileen Dove finding her way to new readers through the publication of this book because her um, entire poem is included at the end of the book. So once the readers have kind of encountered the adventure of a person in in the modern world attempting to find out about her life, they're then introduced to the entirety of her poem and her voice in Irish and with an English translation next to it. So it's really exhilarating to imagine all the new readers that have come to her voice and her words through the publication of this book. And in many ways, I feel like I've been a servant to her throughout in in a good way, you know, and that this is just another element of how I've attempted to serve her memory. Um, So it's great. and, And I'm so grateful to all the readers who have given her such a good home. So there was no closing a door either. She's still with you? She's still with me, yeah. And and it's great. I'm delighted. I wouldn't change that for the world. (laughs) Mm. Now, as we were saying, and as you were also just talking about then, this book is very much about, it's also very much about the art of translation, which is just endlessly fascinating to me. You know, why one particular word is chosen over another, the nuance and how loaded every word is and every choice. Can you talk about that process of translating this poem and and how it was? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is that I approached it with great dubiousness uh, to begin with, and that doubt was rooted in my own capability. And I think probably very close to imposter syndrome, which I know is something that comes up again and again when you're um, speaking with writers. But I really had the sense of who am I to attempt translating Queen Arthi Lyra? I mean, I suppose you'd have to understand that it's a work, it's it's an important work within our literary canon in Ireland, England, Wales and Scotland. You know, it's it, it has been it has been studied a lot. Um, as an example of the Queen, uh, the, the lament form, and it has been translated, as I mentioned in the piece I read earlier, so many times by so many different poets who were often really well established, well thought of, distinguished, often part of the academy, you know, employed in universities. And I mean, here I was, um, a young mother with a rake of kids, you know, making time and saying to myself, well, yeah, there's more than 30 verses in this extraordinary work of our literary canon. Maybe I'll translate it. And I really had the sense at the beginning of that process, like, or maybe maybe I shouldn't. Why, why should I get to do this? But I just... I began to feel increasingly compelled to attempt it. Mm. And eventually I just said, look, I'll give it a go. And I found that process really instructive because I had to listen so closely to her voice. Mm. Um, Like it's one thing to read a poem, even to read a poem out loud or even to read a poem out loud again and again. It's an entirely different thing to spend 30 minutes deliberating over a single verb 
and deciding how you're going to, yeah. like we say in Irish, to put English on it, you know, like to how are you going to carry it into a different language? And the way that I managed to um, convince myself that I was able for that challenge was um, by reminding myself that the word stanza for verse um, in English is very closely related to the Italian word for room. And I was very used to cleaning and tidying up rooms. And I figured to myself, look, just think of each verse as a room and just imagine that you're reconstructing the room of each verse Mm. again in a different language. So then at that point, I was just imagining, okay, this verb that I'm spending so long considering, that's okay, because what that's like is weaving a rug that exactly matches the rug that's in Eileen Dove's poem. So that, Mm -hmm. as strange as it sounds, that actually really helped me to overcome that imposter syndrome. That's so, it's so interesting. I mean, first of all, having imposter syndrome, that that's also a very female thing in itself, isn't it? The kind of feeling unqualified, even though you're so incredibly qualified in my, in my mind and you bring so many different things to it and such a poetic vision that someone in the academy wouldn't bring. And it's such a kind of refreshing and again, central as your poetry is a poem that you have translated. Can I ask as well, I mean, uh, the first two collections of poetry you wrote, you wrote in Irish, um, and then you've also written collection collections in English as well. And of course, this was, you just described that as trying to match the Irish as close as possible in this poem, trying to match the English to the Irish as closely as possible. But in your own poems, is there a different feel in both languages that you allow to live separately in those languages rather than always an exactitude that you're trying to get when you're working between the same text um, in English and Irish? That's a great question, Gemma. And your choice of words is just spot on there, the exactitude. Um, and the the terrible truth of that, um, to answer you very honestly, is that I feel a great um a great loyalty towards that exactitude when I'm translating other people's work from Irish to English. Mm. But when I'm setting out to translate one of my own poems from Irish to English, what I feel more than exactitude is mischief. And <laughs> <laughs> like, I really want to communicate the atmosphere and the kind of like the vibe of the poem in English. So I tend to be quite, um, I suppose the word for, for translation, a good word for it is that it's slippery. So much goes awry between each language and we place so much um, trust in the translator when we're encountering the translation that it has been translated in in a, in in a way that's true to the original text. Um, what I tend to do when I'm translating my own poems from Irish to English, I tend to be very aware of the fact that my current self is looking back to the version of myself that composed this verse in Irish. And sometimes what I feel is, no, that's not what you meant to say at all. Let's make this (laughs) closer to what we want to say as the self we are now. So I have to watch that, that kind of mischief. Mm. But um, 
oftentimes the mischief manifests itself more like a wink towards the reader. Like for a reader who doesn't have Irish, oftentimes like there's one poem that I translated that's in my collection, Lies, where the time is written in the digital clock and I make the time in the English translation is also written in digital format, but I make it a minute later so that for (laughs) a reader who doesn't have Irish, that they have the sense of, okay, there's a time slippage here. What else is going astray between the original poem and the English poem? Like I, I I know it's, it's, it's an extremely nerdy form of fun, but I really do take great joy in it. And it's interesting as well, because I would never in a million years presume to take those kind of liberties in translating someone else's poem. It's solely focused on my own poetry. Um, so yeah, we take our fun where we can get it, I guess, don't we? <laughs> yeah. And what? how would you describe the poetry of Irish versus English, the different character of those two different languages that you write in? Well, they each have their distinct um, melodies and music within the words. And I think I'd say you'd find that with any language, really, um, the kind of song that each language sings is very distinct. And I really enjoy that. I enjoy translating a poem and then letting it land on the ear and, and hearing the different song that the same poem will sing in two different languages. Um, I absolutely love that. Um, so they are very different. It's difficult to articulate precisely how they're different. Maybe I'll read you a poem if that's okay. And, and, and you and your listeners may be able to hear the ways in which it's different better than I can. Um, Okay, um, the, so the poem I'm going to read is called Gleach, and I'll read it in Irish first, and then I'll follow it with my own translation. And this poem really, I think, has gained new relevance during the pandemic because I composed it thinking about video calls. And this was before Zoom and whatnot came to dominate our lives. I was really struck by the ways in which that kind of technology can enable connections between us, but they can also fracture those connections too. Gleach. Nichanglian in Hor the Quail, in Shrang Helephone Shin Nismo. Iremshan Rivri, Nihiglum the Ro of Ru Nisquira Gomachluus. Nichlosham to Eganalu. Anish, she and Lena Lag shaw and Tain Kangala Wain at our Adrin. Agus Titimid, Asikele, a Rish is a Rished Ella. No slender thread, no telephone cord binds us any more. Now that our computers call each other, I can't press your voice to my ear. No longer can I hear you breathe. Now we are bound only by a weak connection and we break up and break up and break up. Thank you. 
the sound of um, the poem in those different languages and the pauses, as you say, they do have a really different feel, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I sometimes think of it like dance um, mm. when I'm listening to other languages and, and sometimes Irish feels like it's got a lot of elbows and knees going on. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need a lot of time before you start writing about a particular subject or is it is it quite immediate for you? Do you immediately want to put it on the page? I guess I'm thinking about certain experiences that you've written about and one of them which came up in A Ghost in in the Throat but also has come up in your poetry was this incredible kind of vulnerable time of your life when your daughter was born quite in an emergency kind of situation, wasn't she? Ended up having to go to the the neonatal care. And in that situation I was wondering and, and more generally in your poetry, do you need time to process experiences like that? in prose or in poetry, or is it something that you just need to get down? Well, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think for me, especially in coming to writing late, like I mentioned earlier, it has been such a source of astonishment for me, how the ways in which it has enriched and changed my life. And one of those ways is really when something traumatic is happening like is unfolding I find myself um falling back on my writing process and the immediacy of it um so for example um my youngest child was born in in very difficult circumstances um and anyone who's had a uh a difficult birth mm. and has had a baby in neonatal ICU will understand the sense of confusion and kind of how muddled everything feels and how shocking in a way that your mind almost can't catch up with what's happening. Mm. Or at least that's how it felt to me a lot of the time. Things kept happening and happening and happening. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I can laugh now because I'm so glad that we all came through it. Okay, at the time, that sense of the way that things kept happening and and the way my mind kept trying to um, just make sense of what was going on was was really challenging and dizzying, Mm -hmm. um, particularly as you're recovering from the birth at the same time. and you're trying to express milk and you're sitting by an incubator and you're frankly, you're terrified a lot of the time. And mm-hmm. what I found for me was having that sense of a writing practice, every now and then a word or two would would almost like a glitch start to repeat in my head. And I would take out my phone like I often do in other circumstances too, and just tap them into the drafts folder in my email. And those words gradually began to become um, poems and began to become the seeds that would grow into a ghost in the throat as well. So I suppose it was surprising at the time, but also the image that comes to mind is almost like a release valve you know, I was so frightened. I was under so much pressure. But this kind of harvesting of a word or an idea or half a thought here and there, mm. it was a release valve. It was it was allowing me 
a different focus. And it was also allowing me to take a half step back from the immediacy of everything and the constant unfolding of, of new information mm. and, and to look at it almost from that half step back through my writer's eyes. And for me, mm. that tiny buffer was very helpful. I'm sure if there was a psychotherapist or something here, they would mm. probably have a lot to say about that. But for me, it was a helpful coping strategy. I wouldn't say I was creating spectacular forms of literature immediately within those moments as I was sitting by an incubator, but there was definitely some part of my imagination engaged in a way that really was my salvation in some part and allowed me to be more involved um, in what was actually happening as well. Um, because I yeah. think some part closes down when you're going through a trauma, some part of your mind closes down and it allowed that part of my mind to stay open and stay engaged while still allowing me half a step back. Yeah, because you're not in control in those moments. There's so much that's out of your control and in a way writing that experience I can imagine not that I'm trying to <laughs> it sounds like I'm getting psychoanalytical or, or but there is an element isn't there of of pinning it down and and um of it being your own experience in that midst of uncertainty absolutely Gem. and a, a sense of the beginning of an attempt to make sense or to draw like I keep going back on the word coherence which is funny because it was it felt like the least coherent experience of all time as mm. it was happening you know where you're just so confused why is this happening what yeah. does that mean even mm. all the kind of um, medical language and and like it will be very familiar to anyone who's been in that situation but um it, there was a beginning the beginnings of an effort to make sense of what was happening to us was what was happening there i think through some element of 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 the writerly craft starting to kick in, just as a defence mechanism, probably. Hmm. And this book is so rich because it has all of the stuff of life, the fragmented, it is very fragmented in the most um, readable and engrossing and rich rich way that reflects the mishmash of life in my mind. It really it really does. And there's something almost hallucinatory about those, those fragments sometimes and poetic, you know. As a poet, I think the way you're writing prose is so, it just really comes alive. It's funny that you say that, Gemma, because oftentimes, I mean, I, as I was editing this book, my editing uh, process is just that I read it all out loud over and over and over oh, again to myself right. because I feel like our ears are our best editors, you know. Yeah. If we read and read and read it out loud, your ear will pick up on a clangor, <laughs> you know, your ear will hear it and it yes. will insist on it being changed. Um, but when I read this book aloud, I can hear the melodies of poetry in it. And wow. anytime anyone speaks about the prose, I kind of feel like it's just poems in disguise. Every paragraph <laughs> of this book is just a secret poem that I tried to make look like prose. <laughs> Uh, there's one description of a teapot. I have to say it uh, for the listeners. It's just one of many. I mean, every word and line. But the teapot curls like an ear embellished with twists of blue. And there's just so many of those stunning turns of phrase. It was such a delight reading it. Um, oh, thank you. 
Now, just before I move on, um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, about the anatomy. Another subject that comes up in this book, um, there are so many fascinating subjects and we can only speak about some of them, is anatomy and your experience working on cadavers, um, which was so fascinating and kind of contrasting to the other elements of the book, really. Um, they almost, it almost felt like a whole kind of piece within it. There's a lot of these kind of worlds within this book. You talk about at one point how you were actually studying dentistry. That was the kind of the way in to working on these cadavers in the medical faculty, wasn't it? So what effect did working on these bodies have on your life? Yeah, it was such a strange and such an interesting time in my life. As a teenager, I became convinced that dentistry was my future and that I really set my heart on becoming a dentist in a very serious way, despite so much advice from my parents and all the people who knew me well and cared about me and were basically like, no, I think that you actually really like reading books. You might be better off studying English or something like that. No, I simply would not listen to them, Gemma. My heart was set on becoming a dentist and off I went. (laughs) My poor parents, my God. But um, I realized very quickly in that first year that um, everyone had been correct that I needed to find a way um, to a more suitable <laughs> university course as soon as possible. Um, and that was a really, that was actually that sense of realizing that I'd taken a wrong turn and experiencing what at the time felt like catastrophic failure to me at the age of 17 was really important because Well, it's something I guess we're more used to talking about these days, how failure can teach you much more than success can. And that sense of failure taught me so much. But in addition to that, I also had the experience in that year in dentistry here, your first year is very close to pre-med, say. So I had the experience of in studying human anatomy for that year, dissecting a human body Mm. and that was extraordinary. It was really, really extraordinary. It felt very close to a spiritual experience, in fact. Um, and I wouldn't change that year for the world. I mean, at the time, I was devastated because all my dreams of dentistry were crumbling before my eyes. <laughs> but now looking back on it, I can see that in many ways that that year made me who I am as a person, you know, and I mm. wouldn't change it. Um, the experience of dissecting a human body was fascinating. Mm. And it's something I think about every day of my life. I feel gratitude to the woman who donated her body to medical science so that we, a group of teenagers, could stand around her body and slowly dissect the layers of it and learn from her in with such immediacy it it's so profound to me and for a long time I questioned what would what could possibly make someone want to give their body to medical science and Mm -hmm. the more I thought about that the more I questioned it the more I realized that 
it was such an extraordinary act of generosity. And I personally, even though I didn't continue with my studies, I drew so much profound kind of learning from that experience Mm. that the more I asked myself that question, the more I realized that the answer was that I wanted to do the same thing, that I wanted to give my body to medical science too, that I wanted other teenagers to have that experience and that I wanted to enable that experience for them, for this group of strangers, that they would have the experience of examining my body and learning more about these layers of of being and these layers of anatomy through this gift that I would give to them. And so I have donated my body now to the same university that I attended. Mm. Um, And it seems to me that there's a strange kind of poetry in that, Gemma, in, 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 in orchestrating that kind of an echo between my past and my future. Mm. And it's also interesting what you talk about in the sense that the reasons that people give their bodies um, to science are often very different and they're not necessarily the ones that we think. Yeah, I think that's true. Like, for example, the poetry of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's such a special, you know, the way you describe it, I think it's... um, And the moments that you had in that particular place and that awareness of death, but also seeing the different way different people in the class would react to the body. Um, I mean, not everyone had that ability to kind of think deeply about it, did they? I'm not sure. Even at the time, I was astonished by it and and fascinated by it, but I'm not sure I fully understood in the moment of it, Mm. that element of it myself. And sometimes I think those moments that become most important in our lives we absorb them as they're occurring, but it's in the years and years of reflection and, and mulling mm. over it that comes afterwards that we really dig into that, um, those moments and really start to kind of um, excavate the importance of those moments to us. Mm. What was interesting to me when I began to write A Ghost in the Throat and I was writing about that experience of dissecting a human body was how that image of standing over the body of a woman and going deeper and deeper into these layers of her being, these layers of her body, was such an echo as well of, of what I was attempting to do with Eileen mm. Dovni Connell, that I was yeah. standing over this woman who, who once lived a life of her own, who had her own desires and frustrations and joys and ordinary things that she daydreamed about, lists of things she needed to pick up from the shop, you know, and that there was a sense of that that experience of dissection was something I was repeating in some way in Mm. seeking out more of Eileen Dove's life, that there was a sense of, of going deeper into those layers involved in both. And that in some ways, that early experience of dissection maybe taught me how to write this book about Eileen Dove. Hmm. Just on a very, um, just more kind of how this all came to be, you were studying dentistry and how did you shift into starting to write after that thwarted dentistry pursuit? How did you actually really start to become a professional writer and also start to tell yourself that you were a writer, that, that this is what you did in your life? 
Um, it's kind of a strange story. So I'll preface it by saying that to uh, your listeners. If you're not interested in strange stories, just go elsewhere now. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, everyone will be tuning in much more closely <laughs> after that preface. Mm. Um, but yeah, I suppose after I left dentistry, I eventually ended up qualifying as a primary school teacher following an arts degree. Um, and I loved being a teacher and I loved uh, the rhythm of my ordinary days. I was teaching what we call junior infants here, so four and five year olds and teaching them to read and doing finger painting and that kind of thing. And I really, really loved that life, Gemma. And mm. um, I had my first son and I enjoyed mothering and I was exhausted by mothering and exhilarated by it and all the things that come with new parenthood. And then my grandfather, who was, I was very close to him, um, we got the call that he was dying. So I traveled with the baby to Dublin to be near him. Um, and my husband was working, so he remained here. And when we got the call with my extended family in the middle of the night to come in to be by his bedside, it was felt, and I can really understand this, you know, it was felt that it wouldn't really be appropriate to have the baby there by his bedside as he was dying. So I couldn't go. I couldn't, I couldn't oh. go. So I stayed in my aunt's house and, um, and I was very distressed as you can imagine. Yeah. And I was lying down beside the baby trying to get him to sleep in unfamiliar unfamiliar bedroom and um and the room was dark and these words started to repeat in my head and the more that they repeated the more I realized that it was poetry now Mm. this was bizarre to me because I had never even considered writing a poem in my life. That was not something I would ever in a million wow. years have thought of doing. And so I was kind of baffled by it and, and initially wondered whether maybe, you know, the way sometimes when you're going through a moment of deep sorrow or worry, sometimes uh, yeah. lines of a song or lines of a poem that you heard in school or in childhood will come back to you out of the blue. Yeah. And I wondered whether it might be something like that, something I'd learned in school, but the more it repeated, the more I realized that, no, it was something different. It was something new. Mm. And when the baby fell asleep, I jumped up and found pen and paper and wrote. I just started to write, Gemma. And 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 those lines ended up being a poem. And I was mm-hmm. so shocked looking at the page. I couldn't believe it. I was there. I had just written a poem. Mm. And that was how I came to writing. And the next day I... That is extraordinary. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, the next day I came to writing and I sat down and I wrote another poem. And And you'd never written before? No, never. Well, like, I mean, you know, in in school where you're given like a story to write or whatever, that would have been the total really of my Mm. efforts to do writing I you know and and I would never ever have written a poem even in school I don't think um so it was completely out of the blue and Mm. a really good reminder for me that life is strange isn't it and it is there is so much mystery around us there are so many things and that we don't fully understand and sometimes life can take you on a weird swerve when you least expect it I mean Mm. 
I ended up giving up my job as a teacher <laughs> in order to pursue writing. Um, and it just seems bizarre to me that that all sprang from that moment when my grandfather was dying. And I really do feel that this practice of writing is a gift and I feel very, mm. very fortunate that it came to me as a gift in the moment that my grandfather was leaving this life, that something else hurried in, you mm. know, and um, and I do think of him a lot when I'm writing, Gemma, I really do. But yeah, I always feel strange. <laughs> I feel strange telling that story always because it is it is such an odd story. And I think people often expect me to say, well, you know, I went and studied creative writing and then I just started writing. Yeah, because I've never heard a story like that. It's an extraordinary story. Were you very close to him? I was. Yeah, I was. But you know what? It wasn't just me that was close to him. He was one of those people who had a natural way with others you know like he was close to so many people and so many people were fond of him and felt like he really understood them um you know I'm sure we all know those kind of people where you you know they just click with so many people and he just had that way about him you know so I'm one of many people that um felt very very close to him was he a storyteller did he have any element of that he he funny enough But he was a civil servant, but he was involved. Every now and then he used to write. Yeah, definitely. I don't think he would have referred to himself as a writer, but one of the things that he ended up writing through work was a manual um, that was published here in Ireland by the civil service of um, how the public, different strategies the public might put into operation if there was nuclear war oh. and so <laughs> it's one of those you know like duck and cover kind of thing yeah. like you know there's a picture there's an illustration on one page of like you know simply just pick up some cinder blocks and build a little <laughs> wall in front of your windows that should be fine that should be fine you know this kind of thing bring yeah. your cows in from the field that should be fine um so the, well, we have very little of his creative writing, I suppose, but I really treasured that little leaflet that he was involved in writing with the best of um, scientific knowledge at the time. But looking at it from our perspective now, you know, it is quite funny. Yeah. Oh, what are you working on now? Oh, um, I'm I'm in such early days of my next prose writing um, mm. project that. I don't really know what I'm doing. (laughs) And I remember that feeling very strongly with the ghost in the throat as well. So I think this time I'm really trusting in it, that sense of the unknown, the sense Mm. of, for me at an early stage of writing, I feel like I'm following hunches all the time. I just get a kind of like, oh, I have a feeling I want to learn a little more about that. Mm. I have a feeling maybe I'll go and seek out more information about this. Mm. And that kind of um, hunch following <laughs> um, is really interesting because you're tapping into the mystery, aren't you? You know, yeah. you're, you're waiting to see what kind of a path you'll be led on. Um, so a lot of the work I've been doing and a lot of the hunches I've been following has been in in terms of archival sources. So right. I've been 
going through like really old ledgers, like 150 years old. And mm. and that experience of touching the pages that someone hands wrote on and that hasn't been opened since has been really moving. And I don't know where it's going to lead me, but I'm really excited to find out. Mm, so am I. I'm very much looking forward to it. Would you be able to end by reading a poem for us? I would love to. Thank you, Gemma. And I think um, the poem I'll read is quite a short poem. It's from my new English, new book of English poems, which is called To Star the Dark. Um, and like a lot of my poems, this one began with my curiosity about a word. Um this word is the term for the little white mark at the base of your fingernails, which looks mm. like a moon. Yes. And the word for that I found out is lunule. Um, and that, um, the joy I suppose I took in finding out that word led to this poem. And it's it's a poem of, of hope, which I think that we all, we all need hope, don't we, at the moment? In such uncertain times. So I'll read it. Lunule. Though it grew dark and darker, how could we despair when we remembered the crescents pale in each fingernail? Ten little moons to glimmer our grip, slips of brightness that persist holding our hands even in darkness. Taryn, a heartfelt thank you for this conversation today. It's just been such a delight and what beautiful readings. Thank you. Thank you, Gemma. And for everyone listening, you can find Darren's poetry books and the utterly brilliant A Ghost in the Throat in your local bookshop.